Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. As we continue working our way through Paul's letter, we now arrive at the, um, the close of a major portion of the book that began all the way back at chapter 8, verse 1. And next week we'll be uh, turning ahead to the subject of uh, corporate, public, gathered worship. He'll have issues of men and women in worship, the Lord's Supper, our gifts and use of those gifts and those kinds of things. But tonight we close out a section of the book and we want to ask this question, how should Christians live in God's world among our non-Christian neighbors? That's the subject of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 through actually chapter 11, verse one. Let me invite you to hear then the word of God. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness... Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you for this word. And I pray that you would uh, teach it to us, open our eyes, help us to understand. Help us to think your thoughts after you, to know you as you are. Uh, to walk with you faithfully as you call us to do. We need your spirit for that. Do that work, we pray, to the glory of Christ, for ask it in his name. Amen. In Paul's day, there were questions and concerns about food they ate and where they ate it. Uh, Well, we think about food a lot in our day. We eat three or four or five. Five times a day, some of us, uh, more than that. We have our own sensitivities, too. Uh, We ask, is it low-carb, low-fat, you know, sugar-free? Does it conform to the Atkins diet or the South Beach diet? Or is it really, truly paleo? You know, is it full of micronutrients for my health? Or will it put five pounds on my belly and hips? 
Well, we ask these questions, I think, a lot. Or maybe it's just some of us who get older. But uh, there's sensitivities about food. In this case, I'm sure they had some of those same. In this case, their sensitivities were religious. Can I eat meat if it's sacrificed to idols? Now, Paul's been dealing with this all the way since chapter 8. And in this passage, he sums up what he has been saying. And he answers a couple of very new specific questions that arise. And then he concludes the whole issue in a way that applies, frankly, not only to what to do about food sacrifice to idols, but really, how do we live in any situation? And so that's what I want us to think about. I want you to think about this passage in three parts. In verses 23 and 24, he sums up two major themes the, the, the principle of liberty and love. The themes of liberty and love, freedom and neighbor love. Then in verses 25 through 30, he addresses two questions. There, there are two examples of the way this works out. One is, well, you know, what if you buy meat in the marketplace? Or what if you're invited over as a dinner guest in a non-Christian's home and they serve you meat? What, what should you do about that? Uh, and then... And then the third thing we want to consider is this. Beginning at verse 31, he makes at least four points of application that have very universal relevance, not just specific to a Corinthian context. Okay, so uh, two themes, liberty and love. Two questions about, or examples, uh, meet in the market, meet in somebody's home, and then Uh, Some words of application, and I aim to be a little heavy on the application today. So let's start there, verse 23 and 24, with the two themes, liberty and love. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. What's Paul doing there? He's quoting them, all things are lawful. There's your liberty. Uh, Whatever they wanted to go out and do, and whenever they wanted to do it, they said to themselves, you know, it's kind of a slogan. All things are lawful. Let's do it. All things are awful. Let's eat it. Let's drink it. All things are lawful. And and, and the expression itself um, probably came from the Apostle Paul. They undoubtedly heard him say, all things are lawful. So it was a true statement in as far as it went. And certainly in the gray areas of life. Where, where it's not evil inherently, then of course all things are lawful. Um, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, none should dare call it sin. That's what a legalist does. They're, they're overly tight, tighter than God himself about the good things of life. But we have no right to forbid What God has not forbidden. Now look, you can be a vegetarian if you want to be. Have at it. You are free to. You just can't tell everybody else they must be vegetarian. I mean, this is part of the idea. There's liberty. There's freedom in the things that we eat. But, Paul says, there are some limitations on the use of our freedom. Not all things are helpful or build up. We have to ask the question, is what I'm going to do with my freedom, is it going to be positive, not just for me, but for other people? Is it going to build others up instead of tearing them down? Let no one, so he says, verse 24, let no one seek his own, 
but his neighbors. And the word good is supplied. The King James uh, inserted the word wealth. He just says, let no one seek uh, his own, but his neighbors. Uh, we're to look out for one another. So, so that Paul is laying down this point in these two themes. It's more important to avoid some things than it is to assert your right to some things when neighbor love demands it. Because of love for others, we should restrain ourselves, Paul says, for their good, even when we have every right. That's the two themes. Now, let's move on verses 25 and 30, because these two themes come to bear on two very practical examples. The principle of liberty and love are nicely illustrated in his two examples. The first example illustrates the freedom. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any, any questions on the ground of conscience. Okay? So uh, you could buy anything sold in the shops in that day, Paul says. It might have been sacrificed in a temple around the corner to Zeus, but now it's out away from the temple. You're not in the temple. You're not participating in religious worship. It's just out in the meat market. Buy it. Take it home. Eat it. Enjoy it. Don't ask, however, <laughs> where did this come from? <laughs> the guy might say to you, well, I don't know. Uh, but I'll go ask the butcher. Or, you know, tr you can track the butcher down. And then you would say, well, well, how do I find the butcher? How, how can I have that conversation with him? Where, where do I go to find out? So Paul says, look, don't play detective about these things. I mean, you might actually trace this thing back and find out that long before the cow was even killed, somebody put a hand on it and dedicated it to Zeus. And then you may have to, depending upon context, tell the merchant, look, I can't eat this. Here's your meat back. Paul says, don't, don't do that. Don't make more trouble for yourself than you need. Just buy it, take it home, throw it on the grill, and shove it down to the glory of God. And here's the reason. Verse, the next verse, he quotes Psalm 24.1. Here's the reason. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting the psalmist, um, and he's saying, look, everything belongs to Jesus. And so it's fine. Paul had already condemned them eating at an idol feast in the temple, you know, going to a celebration where the meat was sacrificed, and then, and then by eating in that temple, participating in the worship of that idol. And he says, you can't do that. And it actually involves you in the worship of demons. Don't do that. But out here in the meat market, don't worry about it. You have liberty. You have freedom. With the coming of Jesus all foods are clean. Jesus declared it. They all belong to God. That's understood. The earth is the Lord's. The fullness of the earth belongs to the Lord. So, so this is helpful. Eating certain food doesn't make you holy. Denying yourself certain food doesn't make you holy. It doesn't bring you closer to God. It doesn't make you more favorable to God. It doesn't make you unfavorable to God. Jesus, after all, is all our righteousness, all our holiness, the principle of liberty. You have the freedom to enjoy your shrimp and your sugar, your butter and your beer. Enjoy. 
It's from Jesus. That's the first example. Buy it in the meat market, go for it. Second example, he highlights both our freedom and the necessity of love for one another. If, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That's the freedom again. Now he's going to qualify it in just a second. But let's just pause there and sit on that for a second. The Corinthians, Paul is reminding us, lived and worked among non-Christians. They may have had non-Christian friends who invited them over because they were friends. They may have had non-Christian acquaintances who invited them over because they wanted to meet a real believer in Jesus. But in any case, they had invitations to the homes of non-Christians. I have a friend who's planting a church elsewhere, and he was telling me the story of him telling an elder in another church who was thinking of coming to his church plant that he shouldn't do so, uh, that he wouldn't like it if he did. That the new church was trying to reach non-Christians. And the elder's wife, overhearing the conversation, said to her, son, said to her husband, we'd have to get to know some non-Christians. And I think, as for many of us, the longer we are Christians, the more comfortable we find it to be around Christians, and the more frequently, I think, sometimes we choose to only hang around Christians. It's a very easy thing to do. And as a minister, I struggle with this uh, certainly as much as, and in some ways, I think perhaps all the more, because my job is to minister to Christians in many ways. But I've always struggled with this. The list of my Christian friends grows as the list of my non-Christian friends shrinks. But Paul is reminding us that the Corinthians would have had non-Christian friends. Paul, we know, made intentionally relationships with non-Christians. Jesus, we know, was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Uh, And so they may have gotten themselves invited to meals. Certainly, as Christians, we could be hospitable ourselves to others. Now, that will change the dynamics of this issue, but certainly, let us. Let us be good friends with all kinds. But anyway, Paul says, now look, if you're invited by a non-Christian, and if you want to go, if you're disposed to go, go. Don't feel like you need to live in a Christian bubble. (laughs) And when you go, be a good guest. Eat what's offered to you. (laughs) Did your mama ever tell you when you go to a friend's house, don't say no to what's being put in front of you? Well, this is Paul's advice, and he, he means it a little more deeply than mama did, but he does mean for us not to be offensive or to hurt or to bother, but he also means religiously he doesn't want us to bring up issues that might be a trouble. Just eat it, he says. And don't ask, where did this fabulous steak come from? Now listen, sitting here today, we might have a fabulous steak with one another or with our non-Christian friends. And we might reasonably assume we could ask, you know, did you get this at Sam's or Aldi's or Harps? I mean, where did this thing come from? I'd like to buy steaks this good. But if you have any suspicion at all that your hostess might tell you she got it from the butcher who sacrificed it to, you know, Luna the moon goddess... (laughs) then don't ask that question is Paul's point. 
if somebody says to you, now look, he presses this argument further. Now, if somebody says to you at that meal, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake, not for your own conscience. You're free to eat. The earth is the Lord's. But for their sake, so that no harm is done to them, this is Paul's point. Now, who is it that said this to you? Is it the host at the meal? Or is it, as some speculate, is it, is it some other Christians who are with you in the home? And one of them has a weak conscience, and they're troubled about where the meat may have come from. And they've discovered it came from sacrifices to idols. Well, if it's the host who says it to you, then Paul doesn't want the Christian to give the non-Christian the impression that it's okay to follow Jesus and follow some other deity. Even though the Christian knows an idol is nothing. There are no other deities. So the meat is fine because it's the Lord's. But don't leave the non-Christian with the impression by your eating it that you are sharing in the honor to that deity. Right? You might be suggesting to them by your actions that idols are significant even though you know that idols are nothing. Or if it's the weaker Christian at the table who's troubled about it and has raised the issue, then Paul is saying you need to think about what would be most helpful and encouraging for to build up this other weak believer. What will, what will help them? It's not that you have a conscience about it, because you're a strong Christian with a strong conscience. Do you know you're free to eat or free not to eat? You can take it or leave it. But the weaker Christian doesn't have that freedom. For them, it's tainted by the idea of offering it to idols. Even though they know that there's no such thing as an idol. Their heart just hasn't arrived with their head knowledge. And so for them, it would be sin. And so Paul here is clear. The one who defers, the one who says, I'm not going to eat. Here is not deferring because it's an issue of their own conscience. They're free to eat. And they're not deferring because they are allowing their freedom to be defined by or determined by another person's conscience. As Paul says, why should my liberty be determined by someone's el- someone else's conscience? And the unspoken answer to that rhetorical question is, well, you shouldn't. Only, only God, not some other person, God through his word has the right to bind and shape the conscience of the individual. So that's not the reason why you would choose to defer in this situation. Because God hasn't forbidden it. God hasn't bound your conscience. No, the reason you refrain has already been given. It's simply because another believer brought the matter to your attention and that it is a likely indicator of the state of the one, of the conscience of the one who brought it to you. And so for the glory of God... And for the building up of the church and that weaker brother, in love, you exercise your freedom not to eat for their sake. Now, we apply that in a variety of ways, in ways that go beyond this particular historical situation at Corinth. We are free, friends, to enjoy the good things of the world because they come from our good God. But when our neighbor imputes to those things religious significance... We ought to be careful we don't confirm them in that religious significance 
as if we agree with them by participating with them. That we don't, and we also should be careful that we don't partake and cause another Christian to stumble into idolatry because they think those things have religious significance when they don't. Now, that is a lot of applications, and I've got six or seven for you. Let me run through them. Maybe this will illustrate what I mean. Uh, One would be simply this. Certainly a, a missionary in a tribal or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist uh, environment needs to be careful, careful about what they eat, when and where, so they don't participate in the worship of some false deity. But there's also this. When you're reading the newspaper and it tells you the factual information about a full moon on Friday the 13th, well, that's interesting. That may be fascinating to you. Full moons are cool. The convergence of one on the date of a calendar called the 13th, which happens to be a Friday, that may happen only every 50 years or something, and that may be an interesting fact. But if our neighbors or our children or some weak Christian has any superstitious ideas about Friday the 13th and thinks that Jesus is somehow not Lord of every day on the calendar, then we need to be careful about these things. Or consider the the stars. The stars and the constellations, magnificently impressive. God spoke them into existence and flung them into the universe. And they have been helpful uh, in guiding people at night in every age who didn't have GPS. (laughs) And you and I probably haven't given them a second thought unless we were trained in the military. But when people put religious significance on stars and the supposed guidance they give based on what month you were born, we're talking about horoscopes, then we must resist that. We don't follow horoscopes. Jesus, not stars, give us guidance. And we should be clear about that. Likewise with athletics. I may have a good or great personal trainer who's got me lifting weights to strengthen my muscle and bones. And you see immediately that this is just a completely made-up illustration. But as soon as my personal trainer tells me my set of dumbbells have great religious significance, and that if I just get in shape and bring my mind and my body in harmony and find the peace within that makes me at peace with all other human and divine beings, well, then I should quit lifting weights in the temple of his workout facility. What's the harm done, you say? I don't believe those things. Well, of course you don't. I mean, if you're a Christian and your conscience is strong, the concern isn't for you. That's Paul's point. You have the freedom. The concern is the other guy, either the pagan or the weak Christian who came out of that kind of thinking and can't yet separate the two in his mind. I'm free to lift weights wherever I want, but I must not confirm my trainer in his beliefs, and I must not lead other Christians astray. I must not deny that Jesus makes peace between me and God and me and others, and that in knowing him there is true peace, and that's where it's found, not in the convergence of mind and body through weightlifting, (laughs) you know in honor of some deity. 
Or uh, another point of application. If you go to be with a friend in the hour of their grief, as some of us have done, in a place of worship because their loved one has died, and in that place of worship there are people coming in and bowing before pieces of bread and cups or a cup of wine, the Lord's Supper, and they are bowing in reverence, well, then you don't do that with them and give them the impression that the bread and the wine is due the reverence which Jesus alone is due. Do we honor the Lord When we partake of the bread and the wine, do we remember the Lord? Are we fed by the Lord? Do we give thanks for the bread and the wine and the Lord? Absolutely. But we don't worship and adore the bread and the wine. And nor should we lead others to do the same. Or we might have this point of application. If you're with a dear brother in Christ who struggles with drinking too much and alcoholism, You abstain out of love for him so that you don't, by using your freedom to enjoy, drag him into a situation where he might be tempted to sin. Or we might say this, if you're a parent hosting a party for other people's children, you check with the parents before you show the kids movies just to be sure you don't cause offense because every family has its different level of comfortability and what they permit their children to see. These are all ways, in other words, that we limit our freedom, freedom we might otherwise enjoy, out of love for one another. And I know none of us have done this perfectly, of course, but we are to enjoy our liberty, but with the limitations of neighbor love. Those are the two examples he gives now. Four points of application as he sums it all up, beginning at verse 31, and draws a conclusion. And these, I think these four have broad application pretty much to every area of life. And here they are. Number one, aim to do everything to the glory of God. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, says the Apostle Paul. Uh, Love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what we're here for. Eat then, Paul says, to the glory of God. Drink to the glory of God, not the glory of yourself. Whatever you do, Paul says, do for him. This is a principle by which to live day to day. It's a principle that's completely portable and transferable. It was and is infinitely flexible and applicable in all sorts of situations. There's nothing that cannot, if it is legitimate, be brought into the service of this goal. You can do any legitimate activity to the glory of God, and we ought to. Now, friends, this is a beautiful attitude. This is the attitude that lifts everything out of the mundane and makes it an act of worship. It lifts the drudgery of slavery to circumstances and makes even our most menial tasks an act of worship to the God who loves us. We can wash dishes or fold laundry or cut grass or take out the trash or do homework or work out or read a book or watch a movie or go to work or take a nap to the glory of God. And we should. 
How enslaving, however, it is to ourselves and to self when all I think about in eating or drinking is myself, my body, my health, my looks. I get all wrapped up in me. And pretty soon all I'm thinking about is me. How enslaving it is to, uh, to discouragement or bitterness. I become enslaved to these things when all I think about in doing my chores is how someone else ought to be doing these, that I didn't make this mess and I shouldn't have to clean it up. But how freeing it is to say to the Lord, this that I do, I do for you. How freeing. Do everything. Aim to do everything, Paul says, to the glory of God. Second conclusion Aim to give no offense to anyone. Verse 32, he divides the whole world into Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. He he divides everybody up into either you're a Jew or you're a non-Jew or you've become part of the people of God. And insofar as it is up to you, you should try to avoid harming any and all of them. (laughs) Don't do anything, Paul says, that would make them stumble into sin. Don't be the cause of others sinning. Don't be their excuse for why they sin. But Paul certainly doesn't mean, so therefore, hold yourself up in a box and never come out, and then you will have done no harm to anybody. But of course, you haven't known or related to or loved anybody either. Paul says, don't just try to avoid, but aim higher than that. Aim, point three, for others to be saved. He goes on to say, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. My chief concern, Paul says, is the salvation of others. And Paul says, our behavior matters to that end. By your example to others, Paul says, some might in fact be saved. By your love for others, Paul says, God may even use you to soften the heart of a person to consider the love of Jesus by the way that you have loved them. Some of you know Ben Russ. He used to be the youth, uh, one of the youth leaders at Covenant Church in Fayetteville. Ben had been a waiter at Macaroni Grill, and he he told me one time that the wait staff would watch from the kitchen to see which tables of people would bow their heads and give thanks for their meal. And they knew that if that happened, then they were less likely to receive a decent tip. They were more likely to be stiffed a tip. They were, they were sometimes likely to receive a gospel tract instead of a tip. Needless to say, the wait staff hated watching Christians bow in prayer because they knew that they were going to get stiffed. They had an unfavorable unfavorable view of Christians and therefore Christianity. And therefore, friends, I fear a hard heart towards Christ himself. Why not rather be pleasant and kind and leave a generous tip? And maybe your waiter, if he knows you're a Christian, will be more inclined to think Jesus is kind and generous as he is. Wouldn't that be a better message? And so Paul wants us to aim at loving others in such a way that we might at least hope for their salvation. 
And our behavior can be an influence to that end. And in saying these things, Paul is trying to move the Corinthians out of a self-centered perspective to an other-centered perspective. He's trying to get them to think communally and not individualistically. Not me and Jesus, but Jesus and us and this whole world of people. And it would be good for us, be good for us to ask if in our dieting, we have become more preoccupied with ourselves or less. And some of us might ask if our indulgence and planning of feasts, <laughs> sort of the opposite of dieting, <laughs> the have at it approach, might also have become more preoccupied with self. And Paul is saying, I want you to be preoccupied with others and their eternal good. And so uh, this is why, frankly, and we don't do this very well, and there are a thousand ways I don't do this well at all. But it's one of the reasons I tell my children we try to pick up our toys in the yard at the end of the day. It's not that we're not going to play or play with the toys. But we don't want to have 12 bicycles and 13 basketballs scattered all over our yard every day and night for the rest of the time that we live here. Why? Well, it might... Well, okay, one is because, because just because of dad. Dad gets easily irritated, right? Uh, but, but one reason is I also don't want to, if I can avoid it, I don't want to irritate all my neighbors such that they dislike us and therefore become less likely to care about the things that we care about, namely Jesus. I'm not saying we've ever put a bike away and that led to the salvation of another person, but... but But, you know, there are things that we do that can soften the heart of another person or harden the heart of another person. And, yes, they have to control their own heart. But let us love and show people we have a God of love. This is why we don't play basketball in our driveway at midnight. Our neighbors are trying to sleep. And we hope that they might actually come to faith in Christ. And we don't want to be the stumbling block. Christ is offensive enough to a non-Christian, all on his own, because he says, I am the only way for you to be saved, and that is humbling. Let's not let us be in the way of that. And the fourth and last thing Paul says is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to follow Paul as he follows Christ. And even here in, in saying this, Paul doesn't set himself up personally as the ruler over our faith and practice but only as he himself is under Christ and following Christ because Christ is alone the Lord of your conscience and the ruler of your practice. Now, he does want them to take note of his example, but he doesn't want them to rest their gaze on his example and never go beyond him to Christ, but rather to move from Paul to the Savior who made Paul the man that he is because he wants us to see Jesus as the ultimate example. And how did Jesus live? In God's world, in a world filled with non-Christians, well, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And at Golgotha, the scoffers mocked him. He saved others, and he cannot save himself, they said to him. And what they didn't know is that the Messiah was free to lose his own life for the eternal spiritual well-being Of others that they might be saved because he, the very image of God, did not grasp his place in heaven, 
but he became a servant, obedient it even to the point of death, even death on a cross, for his good, well, his glory, his glory in your good, at his loss. He gave up his freedom for the salvation of many others, and if he is our Savior, he is to be our pattern. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be a savior to us tonight by Christ's work. Forgive all the blemishes of our conduct that have brought dishonor to him. And they are many. But by his life in us, make us more like him for your glory. That we might be more loving to others, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the Lord's praise.